morning, Southbridge. We're glad each one of you are here. Merry Christmas. We are thankful if you're a guest with us today. I just want to encourage you to make sure you stop by the first-time guest kiosk on your way out. Maybe fill out the connection card that's in your worship program. Today's we're doing Discovering Southbridge. Which is, uh, I'd love to meet you and uh, talk to you about this church if you have any questions at all. Um, and we would love to be able to bless you and be a blessing to you. And so we've got a gift for you as well if you turn that card in. So you're invited to that. We've begun a, a series in our church last week for the Christmas season called Dangerous Decisions. And we're using that phrase, Dangerous Decisions, synonymously with faith decisions. Because oftentimes when you make a faith decision, um, you don't have a promise of how that's going to turn out. You don't know. You could die. You could fail. Lots of things could take place. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen, but you know that God's going to be there. You know, if he's the one that's called you to do it, he's going to equip you and enable you and empower you to be able to meet him and grow in your faith with him in that process and to be able to fulfill exactly what he's called you to do. And for some, it might just be even taking the step, just stepping out and doing that. And so we're asking everybody in our church, what is it that God desires for you to do this Christmas? What is the faith decision that God desires for you to have? And, and we're oftentimes great as a church about talking about decisions to get made. In fact, I just had a guy uh, come up to me, had a, a group of folks that went down to Moore Square and fed the homeless uh, yesterday, I had 46 people make a decision to place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, we rejoice in that. Give the Lord a hand. All of heaven rejoices in that, right? When one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices in that. Luke chapter 15 talks about that, verse 7 and 10. And so it's always right to, to pause and rejoice in that. And so we love the decisions. And some of you made decisions last week. Some of you made faith decisions about dealing with sin. Some of you made faith decisions about t- accepting the Lord's guidance. Um, maybe somebody trusted Christ. I don't know. I hadn't had that reported yet, but maybe. And... Um, we talk about the decision, but we oftentimes don't talk about the follow-through. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited today to be able to introduce some of you to and maybe reintroduce some of you to the Randazzo family. And so I'm going to ask Rick and Shannon to come on up here. Um, Rick and Shannon, for those of you who don't know, are part of our church about five years ago. And the kids, come on up here. You're not going to get out of it this service. I don't know why they think they're going to get out of it this service. We may not come up here last time. Um, but Rick and Shannon uh, were part of our church about five years ago, four and a half years ago. God had a, a special calling on their life to go out and start a new ministry. Some of you have heard of FCA before, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and it's very prominent here in our city. And uh, one of our elders, uh, Danny Lotz, was part of getting that even started here in our city. But they didn't have a hockey ministry. And uh, Rick has a, a unique background in hockey, played at West Point, was one of their all-time leading scorers, assist and goals, from my understanding of how that goes. I'm from Michigan, so I know a little bit about hockey. I just can't skate. And... Uh, and uh, also coached at the Naval Academy. He's one of the winningest coaches at the Naval Academy, but then was working in the, the corporate world. And uh, God laid a burden on their hearts through his word and through some experiences that they had and called them to step out, sell everything they had, and live in a van, not a van down by a river, but a van that they were going to live in for five years and travel around to 50 states in five years and use hockey as an avenue to take Jesus Christ to people. And uh, so I asked them to come here. This is their, you're back in your, the state that you left from, your last state, and you're wrapping up the tour six months early. Look at you. Five, 50 states in uh, four and a half years, and here they are. And so, Rick, I just want to ask you, we've got people here at our church right now. They're, maybe God's going to call them out of the corporate world to do something. Um, some of them are about to take obedient steps, and, and God's continually guiding all of us. You know, he began a good work in us, but he keeps doing that work. Take us back to when God was doing that work with you. And I said in the first service, hey, there's no chapter and verse that says that you're supposed to st- go to 50 states in five years. And he goes, well, actually, the verse was. And I was like, oh, man. So I won't say that. But uh, take us back to your thought process and what the Lord was doing in your heart around the time that God called you to step out and do this. The one word that I would give you that has been there for Shannon and I and our family this past five years has been obedience. And Scott's going to do a great job talking about that today. We were obedient to what the Lord called us to do as a family. In December of 2009, on December 26th, the Lord took me to Isaiah 6-8, which says, Who will go for me? Here I am, Lord. Send us. And that was the Lord's way of making it clear to us that we were going to have a journey. We were going to start a journey. We didn't know what the journey was. We didn't know what it would look like, how long it would take. But then the Lord revealed the rest of the plan as we moved. He gave us just a little bit. And then as we took that faith step, he gave us a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And then he gave us a little bit more. And about a month later, the Lord gave the rest of the plan, the planning plan, to my wife. And I'll let her finish up with that. Okay, so we knew we were going. We just weren't sure where we were going. Um, So it was about a Thursday morning, 4 a.m. I just felt something waking me up. So I woke up. I had paper and pencil next to me. And quickly I knew it was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit began to speak, and I began to write. 
And the whole vision of the next piece, as Rick said, 50 States, 50 Cities came out. And it was two pages back to front. We still have the original one, complete detailed. We, it gave us, the Lord gave us the launch date of August 2011, gave us a vision that we would go into one city of one state for one month, and we would run ice hockey clinics for kids and adults. We would work with coaches. We would work with local families. We would share the gospel at every clinic, give out New Testament Bibles, and we would do what we could to help tie these families back into their local community through churches, through uh, Bible study fellowship, Awana, any program that we felt that they would, would love to get a part of. Um, and so as that, that vision continued to come out, um, there was a prophetic side of it as well. Uh, the Lord told us in the third year that he'd rise up a second family to join us on the tour, and he did. Um, after our first year, we met the Evans family, who is here today. So if you have a chance to say hi to them, please do. Uh, we met them, but of course we just thought we were meeting them because they were another hockey family. And then after year two, the Lord placed on their heart that they were going to leave everything they knew in the state of New York. Dave uh, was a teacher. He took a sabbatical for a full year, and they joined us on the road and did eight independent states as well. Um, So it's been an incredible step and action of faith as God not only called us, he gave us a vision, a plan, and as um, we talked about last service, he equipped us, and then he sent us, Mm -hmm. and off we went. Well, it sounds cool to us, right? It's like 50 states, and you went to every state, and the kids see you stepping out by, yeah, faith and all that. Living in a van doesn't sound so cool. To me, I know that every month was unique because Rick and I, we didn't email every time, but then sometimes he'd send me, hey, do you know anybody that lives in this state? And so they didn't always know where they were going to live and what it was going to be like. Can you tell us a little bit, Shannon? I'm going to ask you as the wife to tell me a little bit. I know that he's you know, all positive and all the people that came to Jesus and all that stuff, but tell us what it was like doing this because when you step up by faith, it's not always easy. Yes, absolutely. It is not easy. And um, the Lord will always ask you to give up what you knew um, because he wants to take everything away that you knew and fill you back up with what he knows. Uh, so when we left in August of 2011 with five kids in a, a van and a trailer, our house was on the, the market, our two cars were gone, we've sold most of our furniture and belongings, the kids each got one suitcase and a bin, and they were told, you know, pick your favorite toys, that's all you're taking. And, uh, and we and left. And pick the one you want in five years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The rest is getting sold or stored, and you'll outgrow it by the time you get it back. But um, So we headed up to Maine. We had rented a house there. Uh, they told us there was some minimal furniture there, and um, they were right. Uh, look up the word minimal before you <laughs> act on it next time. There was a king mattress um, on the master bedroom floor that was just filled with stains. There was a couple... Um, a couple uh, blow-up mattresses, one table, five broken chairs, and uh, the house was infested with spiders. So it wasn't even 24 hours where I began my I quit. (laughs) And I think that went with me for probably 90% of the four and a half years because I looked at the Lord and I said, Lord, we were doing a lot better before you asked us to take this next step. So I don't get it. And the Lord just said, you know what, Shannon, you will. Because before I can send you out, I need to teach you how to love. And the most important thing he taught me that was probably our theme for the first two to three years but maintained it through the whole was, I'm going to teach you how to find joy in the midst of uncomfort. Because it's easy to serve the Lord when we're comfortable and we have a good night's rest and we feel like our kids are tucked safely into bed, but we're in a place that's strange to us, a place place is uncomfortable, a place we had never, ever... um, lived in that sort of a standard before, began us to question, what, what were we giving up? What was the cost to follow Jesus? And I can fast forward quickly to State 16 when we were in Louisville, Kentucky. We were at a mission house. Um, we were told when we moved in, we had a cistern. We were told we could flush nothing down the toilet. We had to bag everything. Septic systems broke that month. So we had septic running across the yards. Um, it really was an unhealthy place. And there was a group community there that said, hey, we've raised enough money. We're going to put you in a hotel. And at that point, Rick and I looked at each other and we said, we're not leaving. This is where God's put us, and we don't want to miss what he's doing here. And so within two years, he did. He taught us. He stripped our hearts away. He showed us my people are more important than than the places that you think you're going to go. And I can definitely tell you, and my kids will testify to that as well, there is no greater privilege than being a part of what God's doing and seeing a life not only come to know Jesus Christ, but their life now be filled with hope because of the transformation that, that, that has been made mm-hmm. because of that decision. Well, Rick, I'm sure there's a bunch of 
answers to this question, and each one of you could probably testify to different things, but what would you say is a, a big lesson that you guys have learned? Maybe not. Maybe it's a specific, I was in Nebraska or Hawaii or North Dakota or wherever it was you were at, but what's the, the thing that you think the Lord's really taught you through this four and a half years? The Lord's taught us so many lessons, but the one thing that continues to come back to us is when he calls you, he's going to equip you to do the job. Yeah. It might not be the way that you expected it to go. And we've learned time and time again that through struggles, he's teaching us something else. Mm -hmm. And the Bible talks about it all. He's building our perseverance. He's through trials and through struggles. But at the end, we can look back and see why he did everything he did. We didn't get it at the time. But now looking back... Both us and the Evans family can look back and see the lives we've been able to impact, Mm -hmm. the things that he's done in our lives, teaching us sacrificial service, Mm -hmm. how to to love when you're uncomfortable, all those lessons that are so hard to learn when things are going great, Mm -hmm. but we learn when things are going tough. I loved what you said uh, earlier when you were talking, and you said... Uh, that he just showed you enough for the next step. It made me think of Psalm 119. That word is a lamp, not a spotlight, but a lamp unto Absolutely. my feet and uh, a light unto my path. And why don't you tell us a little bit about, and just uh, promo here, plug here. Uh, after the service, you're going to be over at New Life Camp. There's going to be a reception. If you want to hear more of their story, hear more about what they're doing next, maybe you want to pray for them or maybe you want to be encouraged, maybe you have a question for them, uh, something that's going on in your life. If you know them, you just want to encourage them or you want to sponsor, you know, financially support what's happening next. Tell us what's happening next for you guys. Well, we're going to take some time, and we have an, a condo in Utah. When we sold our place here, we were homeless for a couple of years, and then we, um, we're going to be on the West Coast, and we needed a little bit of a home base. So we bought a place in Utah. We're going to go there for the next four or five months. And at the same time, we're actually part with a group in, um, in Alexandria, Minnesota, a small little town of 13,000 people that are building a Christian school that have a heart for discipleship mm-hmm. impacting their community the state of Minnesota, in, in, the, in the country for Jesus Christ, and they're going to build us, FCA Hockey, our own ice arena cool. that we can do ministry in for coaches, hockey players, families awesome. from all across the world. Mm-hmm. And for those of us who aren't as familiar with hockey, tell us, I mean, I know you get NHL players, high school players, junior players, all that stuff. Tell us, what's the spiritual vibe? Well, hockey, they say, is the, the darkest of the professional sports, and, and it's just a sport that plays all weekend. There's so much travel, and it's hard to, go to, to, to make a time to go to church. Football, mm-hmm. you play on Saturday, you have church on Sunday. Hockey, it doesn't work like that. So when we were called into hockey, we knew it was going to be a tough battleground. Mm-hmm. In the NHL, if you're a Christian player, you're not tough. Mm-hmm. Where all of these things have been there. Mm-hmm. Well, over just the past six or seven years that we've been involved, and there's pro hockey players here with us today mm-hmm. that have been involved in our ministry and uh, and that has been changing radically, Amen. and uh, and we've been able to partner with coaches and 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 players of all ages. We have a pro ministry, a college ministry, a high school ministry, um, and youth ministry, raising up this generation that's going to go into the NHL or go into college hockey. They're praying after games. It's never happened before. Mm-hmm. Center ice at the NCAA tournament or or in pro games, and it's just people are saying, "What's going on with hockey? Mm-hmm. How?" is that Jesus is impacting this sport. That's awesome. It's fantastic. I love that you guys are focused on Christ, uh, you know, centered on the word, discipling people, not just getting them to make decisions. And uh, I wish you were staying here for the sake of our church and uh, being able to be blessed by you and your family um, and all that you bring um, to the body. But uh, we're excited for you going to Minnesota, and we want to pray for you. And so it's been our custom as a church. You just want to kind of extend your hand. We're going to pray for the Randazzos and what they have next. And um, I don't know who's out there that I, that I would feel comfortable with me calling on. Michael Darlington, why don't you come on up here and pray for these guys. And uh, just pray for the ministry that they're going to have. And uh, if you're a guest, I would never do this to you. Don't worry, but uh, I know Michael. So, Michael, why don't you come up here and just pray that God would have their, his hand on them. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, Lord, we just ask that, uh, first of all, we thank you for your time, Lord, that you give us, the blessings that you give us, Lord. But I just pray for the Rendazzo family you would be with them, Lord, that you would open doors that only you can open, that you would uh, not only give them the pieces of the puzzle, Lord, but shine that light so that they can see it brighter than anything that could ever shine. Mm-hmm. Lord, we just ask that you would be with them and go with them and place a hedge of protection around them, mm-hmm. Lord, and change lives as they go. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, guys. Thank you. Give my hand. Love them. Well, like I said, we're doing this series called Dangerous Decisions. There's a real-life example of a faith step. And I don't know what God has for you, but I'm going to ask you the same question I asked last week. What faith decision does God want you to make this Christmas? What faith decision does God have for you? We started off looking at a passage of Scripture for this series. It really launched into the whole series that's oftentimes overlooked for the Christmas story. Usually we jump right into Luke chapter 2 or Joseph and Matthew chapter 1. But at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus. And last week we looked at Abraham. It says in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 1, Abraham, the father of Isaac. And we said, what does that mean? And we went to Genesis 22 and saw how God will oftentimes test our faith. And we saw the tested faith. He's going to test what you withhold from him, like Shannon was talking about. Strip things away. He's going to test our obedience. He's going to test what we love because he wants to be the one that we love. And so I want to ask you, as you take the next step in your faith journey, for some of you it might be the first step, trusting Jesus, but what faith decision does God want you to make this Christmas? For some, it's obedience. I know some people made that type of decision last week. There's a sin that needed to be dealt with, and God had been convicted in their hearts, and it's time to step out. For some of you, it's guidance. And God's been speaking to you and probing you. Even Rick shared how and God's been speaking to him, preparing him about a year, year and a half before they actually stepped out. And maybe God's been doing that to you, and he's probing you, and you're continuing to talk to him about that. And for some of you, it might be trusting Christ. What faith decision does God want you to make this Christmas? And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the, another name that's in Matthew chapter 1. It's a female name, Ruth, one of only a couple books that are named after a woman in the Bible, and the book of Ruth is where we're going to be. It might take you a moment to go there, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there right now, and we're going to look at Ruth chapter 1. We're going to focus in on verses 15, 16, and 17, talk about a committed faith, and see three different elements of a committed faith. But we're going to read Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to start all the way up in verse 1, and so if you're looking for it right now, it's right by the book of Judges. Judges is a bigger book, about 21 chapters. Ruth is a small book, only about four chapters, and then there's 1 Samuel, another big book and so it's almost like Ruth is the aioli like Ruth is the secret sauce in the sandwich right there so judges then Ruth small one and then first Samuel as you turn it in your Bible so it, uh, to tell you what's going on here in Ruth one of the big themes in Ruth is what's called hesed it's a Hebrew word and uh, it doesn't I can't just say it means and then give you another word because it doesn't translate well into English but I remember when I was in seminary uh, I took my first Hebrew class in the middle of the summer and here I was going to go learn this language. I don't know anything about it. Like to me, it might as well have been hieroglyphics. They all look like symbols, and it's written the opposite direction of what I'm used to reading. And the grammar's different, and they have you memorize all these words. So it's, needless to say, I was not excited about learning Hebrew. And we studied the book of Ruth. And I remember walking away and thinking, what an amazing book. And of all the words that we had to memorize, the word that stuck out above all of them for Old Testament words was this word hesed. Hesed, it means, it's translated in the... Verses we're about to read, kindness. And sometimes it's translated love. Sometimes it's translated covenant, loyalty. Sometimes it's God's love. Sometimes it, because one word won't do it. Sometimes in your English translations will say loyal kindness, loyal love. And they'll put words together to say it. And what it is, it's God's love. It's a one-way kind of love that doesn't expect anything in return. It's a covenant love, a committed kind of love. And that's what you see throughout the book of Ruth. To give you the context, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And I'll just warn you ahead of time, it's very dark. And so I know it's Christmas, but God oftentimes does his best work um, in those dark days and when you're in the valley. And that's one of the things he does here in the life of Naomi through Ruth. Look at it. In the days when the judges ruled. And so in our Bibles, this book comes right after Judges. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth actually came after Proverbs because Ruth is the example of the Proverbs 31 woman. It's the only place, uh, a noble wife, who can find Proverbs chapter 31? The only one that's mentioned as that is in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 11 talking about Ruth. And in our Bibles, we put it here right after the book of Judges because in the, chronologically in the time of the Judges. Now, what were the time of the Judges? Well, if you read the book of Judges, what you'll find out is there was no king in Israel. There was really no spiritual leadership until God raised up judges for periods. And so what it says in the book of Judges is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? That's what's going on in Ruth. In the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem means house of bread. There's a famine in the house of bread. Is that ironic? The judge is ruling. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. There's a famine in the place where God supplies. And together with his wife and his two sons, they went a while to the country of Moab. Now, understand this. We could just read over that. You know, you're doing your devotions, and you're reading the Bible, and like, again, they moved to Moab. Okay, just like the Randazzos moved to Minnesota, or you might move to New York, or move from New Jersey to Raleigh. And, like, we're mobile community. 
And this time, if you left your town, it was only because of the most dire circumstances. So any ancient reader that reads that knows there's serious problems. They left and they went to Moab. Those are idol worshipers. They were born out of incestuous relationships and they were definitely looked down on as that weird cousin you might have. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there because things were so bad. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, which that wasn't good. But it was God's plan. And what you'll see at the end of this message is that God actually took a Moabite, another idol worshiper, just like Abraham, and intentionally put the blood of a Moabite in the veins of the Messiah. Married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, and so after they'd been married for about 10 years, they didn't have any kids either, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. To us, this sounds sad. This would be difficult for anyone. But you've got to remember, this is a male-dominated society. If she doesn't know how to do a craft, she has no way of making money. So what's happened is her covering is gone. Her spiritual covering, her social covering, her protection from other people that would take advantage of her is gone. Her future plan, retirement's gone because the boys are gone. It's all over. She's got no hope. That's what's just been communicated. In verse 6, when she, Naomi, heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people and provided food for them, Naomi her daughter and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home, talking about Bethlehem, from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, as they're going, so the three of them are on their way, on the road, she says to her daughters-in-law, go back. Each of you, turn back, each of you, to your mother's home. Interesting, she says mother's home and not father's home. Their mother and father's probably, but the mom's the one who talked about being married again. May the Lord show kindness. That's that word hesed. His, may God, the God of Israel, the one true God, even when you go back to the Moabs, he's so powerful and so in control and so loving. May he show that one way, covenant kind of love towards you as, he, as you've shown to the dead and to me, to your dad, your husbands, and to me. Verse 9. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband, that you'd have a future. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, these are the two women, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? There's no good reason, is what she's saying. Am I going to have two more sons, any more sons, who could become your husbands? Verse 12, return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was enough hope for me. Even if, second time, hypothetical, best case scenario, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, like I had twins in my womb, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No. Let me answer the rhetorical question in case you have the wrong answer in your mind. No, my daughters, Naomi says. It's more bitter for me than for you. At least you have a future. This is terrible that your husband's died. It's terrible that you haven't had any children. It's terrible all this is happening. But at least you're young enough to remarry, she says. And then she says this, and don't forget this. Remember this at the end of this message. Because the Lord's hand has gone out against me, Naomi says. Not only am I hopeless, God's against me. Verse 14. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. And now we see this committed faith. Naomi says to Ruth again, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people, to her gods. Go back with her. Verse 16, But, contrast, Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. And may the Lord, not may the people, not may you, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. This is a committed faith. But I want you to notice, when you look at verses 16 and 17, the commitment's not just to Naomi. There's a commitment to Naomi, but she's really making a commitment to the Lord. Because she says, your people will be my people, where you go, I'll go. That's a commitment to Naomi, but she says, your God will be my God. And then notice what she says in verse 17. Verse 17 pushes it over the top to me. Where you die, I will die. Because think about this. Naomi's in her 50s, probably. 
And most likely, Ruth is in her young 20s. So when Naomi dies, they're not going to die at the same time. She's saying, I'm committed. Even after you're dead, Naomi, I'm still committed. And then she's just had this conversion experience. This is the Old Testament conversion experience. Your God will be my God. I'm going to follow the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one we call Father, the one true God. And then she calls a curse, not from Naomi, not from the people of Israel. Now may they curse me, not may I have a bad reputation, not following through. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. This woman's committed. And what we see are some characteristics of a committed faith. And the first characteristic we see today is that a committed faith goes all in. A committed faith goes all in. There are different ways you could say this. Paul Miller in his book, it's, about, it's called A Loving Life. It's about this Hesed love. And it's not kind of loving. It's a, it's a love that loves with no exit strategy. You could say uh, a committed faith is no turning back. What I'll say today, a committed faith goes all in. And you see that with Naomi. Naomi and uh, Ruth. And Ruth says to Naomi, I'm in. I'm all in. Verse 16. She's given all the reasons why she shouldn't go. She's given all the reasons. God's, the God that you're committing to, he's against me. You have no future if you come with me. You're, you're leaving your family. You're leaving your comfort. You're leaving all this stuff. And then Ruth says, don't urge me to turn back. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. In fact, if you jump up in verse 14, it says there, when Orpah's decided she's gone and she gives a kiss and she's headed out and some people give Orpah a bad reputation like she turned her back on the Lord, she's obeying, she's doing what Naomi asked her to do. She's doing what's reasonable. She's doing what makes sense. She's not the bad guy here, but it's such a contrast to what Ruth does. Verse 14, if you've got your Bibles, you can look up at that. And it says, but Ruth clung to Naomi. That word for clung there? In Genesis 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, when God's instituting marriage between one man and one woman, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, he will cleave, he will cling to his wife, they'll be united, the two will be united, they'll become one flesh. Same word used there, Genesis 2, 24. It's talking about an inseparable bond, separated only by death. That's what Ruth is doing. She's all in. And this is rare. And if you think I'm making that up, I'm going to read you what one Bible scholar says about this passage, verses 16 and 17. I think we have it and put up on the screen. It says, Your people will be my people, and your God my God is a radical thought because it signals that Ruth is changing her identity. And what happens when we place our faith in Christ? So we become adopted into God's family, Ephesians chapter 1. We are his children. He changes our identity. You're now a son or a daughter of the king. One of the reasons why we rejoice whenever somebody turns, they go from a sinner to a saint, not because they're so good, but because they've been adopted into God's family, been given old things pass away, new things come. And so what Ruth is doing here, it's the same thing, Old Testament version, changing our identity, but listen to the world, in a world where that was almost inconceivable. The ancient world had no mechanism for religious conversion or change of citizenship. The very notion was unthinkable. Religion and peoplehood define one's ethnic identity. This could no more be changed than the color of one's skin. But Yahweh could do it. Because he wasn't, oftentimes these gods, the Moabite gods, they worshiped a god called Chemish. Chemish was uh, one that would accept child sacrifices. And there's other gods. Most of the other gods, when you look at them, you see parallels to the gods that we worship. And they call them idols in the Old Testament, and we don't call them that. We call them things like comfort, materialism, greed, you know, selfishness, all that kind of stuff. And uh, what they do is they basically make promise things they can't deliver on. Sound familiar? And then we go after them, and we give our whole hearts to them, we give our lives to them. But what we oftentimes do as Christians is we try to pretend like we're Christian Buddhists. We take Jesus and we add him into all the other gods that we have. And God's not cool with that. When he calls you to faith, he's calling you to an all-in kind of faith. And so if you're deceived into thinking that he's cool with, well, I've got, I'm going to add Jesus to the other stuff I got, you've been deceived. But see, this kind of commitment makes most of us pretty uncomfortable. Because we live in a commitment-averse society. And just think about it. New Year's is coming up. How many people will make New Year's resolutions? Go ahead and raise your hand. How many people will probably make New Year's resolutions? If you're like America, there's about half of people. You don't even want to raise your hand, do you? You feel embarrassed. I see one guy. He was, he was, I, I cover, he was like, I think I might. What are you about to say? <laughs> Statistics say that 50% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. And of those 50%, 88% will fail to keep them. It's 156 million broken resolutions. 
And there's science behind why does that the brain works this way and all that kind of stuff. And there's all kinds of things that you can learn about, but we don't think much of it. And just think about what just practically what happens. And what New Year's resolution? I'm going to work out more. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going I'm to stop smoking. I'm going to be a nicer guy. I'm going to be whatever. And we fill in the blank. And then what happens? A better option comes along. What we think is better in that moment, at least. Oh, it's six o'clock in the morning, and uh, I got to get to the gym. Nah, I got a better option. Or I'd rather eat these chips and sit on the couch and watch this show than the salary. That's so, yeah. No one Better options. We got better options. And there's a cause behind why we don't go all in for God, too, by the way. And we don't like to expose this, but we think there's better options. And so we do it in our practical lives. Like if I said to you, if we were bumping into each other, I was talking to a young couple on the hallway. Um, if I said to them, hey, let's get together. My wife and I'd love to go to dinner with you. Why don't we put it on the calendar? How about August 1st? They're going to feel uncomfortable. And we want to wait until like, well, I don't know what I'm, I'm not doing anything tonight, so let's get together tonight. Because I don't, I don't think I have a better option. But on August 1st, I don't even know if I'm going to live here. We're upwardly mobile. I might be in some other place. I might have a better option. I doubt you have something on your calendar that day. We don't want to commit. And so you can bash marriages and how you know, people fall out of love. And just, you know what happens? A better option comes along. You don't just leave. And so that what happens in our spiritual journeys too. But you know what? God's not, he's not cool with that. He wants you all in. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow, that means starts the work, and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Which makes me think of a story that's real close to what we were preaching on last week in Genesis chapter 19, where God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember all the immorality and the wickedness there? And there's an interesting part that happens right before that where Abraham, the guy we were looking at last week, he has a negotiation with God. God, if there's this many people, will you save it? If there's this many people, there's this many people. And they go back and forth, and then God's so gracious. He sends some angels of the Lord to visit this place. And he warns Lot, somebody that Abraham loved. He says, you need to get out of here. I'm going to wipe this place out. And Lot said, where do you want to go? I can't make it there. And God's so merciful and so gracious. But he says to him, would you leave? Don't even look back. And those of you who know the story, his wife looks back and doesn't go well for her, does it? God's not cool with that. When you, when you go, you go. What does he say throughout the scripture? Well, he gives us continually, pick. When you, when, but when you pick, you go with all your heart. I was reading a story to the kids the other day. 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah's fighting the prophets of Baal. And so there's a battle between the prophets of Baal. The Baal's one of their false gods at that time. And then Elijah is the prophet of the Lord. He represents God. And listen to what he says. It's interesting language for a prophet. He says in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, Elijah went before the people, some of them believing, some of them not believing. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But you don't just get to keep your options open. You've got to pick one. The New Testament says, well, we can't have two masters. The people said nothing. It's uncomfortable. You've got to commit. Listen to a podcast. I would have never thought of this verse in light of this topic. But listen to a podcast by John Piper, and he was talking about making commitments and how making commitments is right. And, and he talked about uh, a passage, and the reason why I would have never thought about it because it's about secondary issues. It's about, like, some people think this day is important, some people think it's this day. And, you know, we hear even Christians debate, should we have Sabbath on Saturday or on Sunday? And some are like, well, I don't care. And so what does Paul say in Romans chapter 14? Romans chapter 14, verse 5, he says this, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Okay, well, we can disagree about some of these things. Secondary type thing. But look what Paul says. This is God's word. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. But if you're going to you pick one, then be all in on that one. Like, there's no wishy-washy. There's no riding the fence here. Like, if you're going to make a decision, then go for it. So you don't get to wear your, know, your NC State on one side and UNC down the other side. So you don't get to have, you know, Jesus, but then my other gods. Selfishness, greed, materialism, whatever they are. When you decide, you decide. And so he says about secondary issues, the things that aren't primary. Primary things are like Jesus is the only way to heaven. I uh, believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God. And, and when Jesus asked the greatest command, what does he say? What is the greatest commandment, Jesus? He says, love the Lord your God with part of your heart and most of your mind. Kind of be there with your soul. No, he says, all of your heart, 
all of your mind, all of your soul. And then you start looking at the Bible and you think, what about these people that make faith decisions? Do you want to read about this like supplementary to what we're talking about in this series? Read Hebrews chapter 11. Read those folks. And then what do they do? And what was that like? And we talk about it being dangerous because we don't always know how it's going to turn out. And read about what happened in their lives. Some of them is like, oh man, that's how I'd want it. Some of them be like, I don't want anything to do with that. But they were all all in. What about Peter? Peter gets out of the boat, Matthew chapter 14. Peter doesn't like test the water. Oh, I wonder if it's warm. Huh? He steps out of the boat. What are those Hebrew boys? Daniel chapter 3, some of you know that story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they won't bow down to another god. And they said, if you don't bow down to this god, we're going to kill you. We're going to burn you in a fiery furnace. And I love what they say to the king. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, because it's so like where we live. A lot of times we think in the Bible, well, they must have had a special word. They must have really known. Look what they say. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. He will rescue us. Ultimately, he will rescue us from your hand. Verse 18, though. But even if he does not, isn't that where most of us live? Well, you don't know. You don't have an assurance on how some of this stuff's going to happen. Even if, even if we die in that furnace, we're all in. We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. We're in. When Abraham raised the knife above Isaac's neck, he was all in. What about you? What faith decision does God want you to make this Christmas? If you make it, make sure you're all in. I was talking to a guy out in the lobby uh, last week after the service, and he was new to our church, and we were talking. He said, hey, I'm about to leave town. I'm going to Greece. and I'm going to be in, throughout Europe. Do you have any gospel tracts I can give out to different refugees there? A lot of refugees there. And uh, I remember Pastor John was there. I said, do we have any? And he went and grabbed some gospel tracts. And while we were there, it reminded me of a story. I shared it with the guy. Of when I was in Greece, I remember they told us, even then, this was before ISIS and before the Syrian refugees and all that stuff that was happening, um, they said that Greece is the, the front door to Europe to get refugees into, into Europe. So when they're fleeing different places, and there'd be people from the Middle East all over the place. And I remember meeting one specific table of guys. There were seven of them, I believe. And I sat down, and typically what had happened, we'd met lots of refugees while we were there, and typically when you'd meet these guys from the Middle East, there'd be at least one that spoke pretty good English, and so you'd start talking a conversation with the whole group, and they'd share stuff, and then the one guy would share it with me. And I'd just ask, you know, what's it like leaving there, and what was it like coming here? And there were seven of them, they said, well, we can't go back, because this is before ISIS. They said, if we go back, Al-Qaeda will kill us, because we left. I said, how'd you get here? They started telling me a story about making a raft that 13 of them got on. There's only seven of them there now. So the other guys died on the way. They were all in. You make a decision. You go all in. But don't just make a rash decision. This sounds like a good idea. I'm going to go for it. No, count the cost. That's what we see with Ruth. She was all in. Your God is my God. Your people, my people. Where you go, I'll go. I'll cl- and she's clinging like a marital commitment. She's clinging. She says, even when you die, I'm going to stay. Because I'm committed to the God. But it wasn't because she didn't count the cost. She knew the cost. And so a committed faith not only goes all in, but a committed faith counts the cost. So if you're going to make a faith step, you need to count the cost. And let me tell you something. Peter knew. Peter was not unfamiliar with the water. He knew the risk of stepping out of that boat. He counted the cost. Those Hebrew boys, they knew. They knew the cost. Abraham, he knew the cost. Ruth, she knows the cost. It's been laid out through this passage already, and so I'm just going to go back and review some verses we talked about. And you jump back to verse 11 if you have a copy of the scripture. We'll put it up on the screen. Let me tell you a couple things to keep in mind. There's some cultural context here to keep in mind. One, remember, this is a male-dominated society. Say that you're never going to have a husband again means no future plan. You've got no hope. There is no security. Your covering is gone. And then there was a rule, law, that comes from the Bible that Naomi's referring to in verse 11 through 13. It's called the Leverite Marriage Institution. And what that was is if a, a woman's husband died and she didn't have any children, that man's brother was required to marry her and give her a child so that she could continue the family line. Because if, you, if your name died, it was as if you never existed. And so Naomi, with that context in mind, says this, verse 11, Return home, my daughters, because at this point, both Orpah and Ruth are both going to come. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? She's saying to them, count the cost. You have no hope. Return home. She says this repeatedly through chapter 1. Go back. Return home. Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if, so hypothetical, best case scenario, even if 
I thought there was still hope for me. Interesting way to phrase that, that you have no husband. Not even if I thought I could get married again. Even if I thought there was hope. She's saying there's no hope. Count the cost. Even if I had a husband, tonight we got married. And then, nine months later, I gave birth to two sons and they were twins. Okay, the likelihood of that, almost impossible. But even if that were true, you'd still be in trouble, Ruth and Orpah. Would you wait until they, were, until they grew up? They're probably in their 20s. Are you going to wait another 16, 18 years? Would you remain unmarried for them? And in case you're thinking maybe, no. My daughters, it is bitter for me, more bitter for me than for you. And not only that, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Remember that. At this, they wept. Of course they would. Verse 14, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law, and Ruth clings to her. Then verse 15, Naomi said, you want to count the cost? Look. Orpah's leaving. You see that? Look. Pay attention. It's peer pressure. Look. Your sister-in-law, she's going back. She's using this as an example. You know what she's going back to? It's everything that's going to cost you, Ruth. She's going back to her people. They didn't have Skype. They didn't have Facebook then. You come with me, Ruth. You'll never see your mother and father again. She's going back to her people, her comfort, her home, her mother's home. She already referred to it. To her gods, go back with her. So what's the cost? Just verse 15. You can just look at verse 15. I was there in 11, 13, 12, 13, the future, they have a child, you're never going to have a husband, all that stuff is being laid out for. But then just look at verse 15. You're turning your back on everything you know. You're turning your back on your comfort. You're turning back on your home. You're turning, wait about, what about Orpah? That's the only woman in the world who knows exactly what it's like to be Ruth who also had a relationship with Naomi, who the head of their home, Elimelech, has died. And then both their husbands have died, and neither one of them have children. And Naomi says, she's leaving. She's walking out of your life if you don't go with her. You need to go. Ruth knew the cost. See, the problem for some of us is we'll make a rash decision, and we haven't counted the cost. You've got to think through, what is the cost of whatever faith decisions God's calling you to make? Maybe it's to trust Christ as your Savior. Maybe it's a sin issue. Maybe it's guidance. What Have you counted the cost, though? A lot of times we don't count the cost and we get ourselves in trouble, and then we turn back and, and we look foolish in, in doing so. And so. I don't know if you saw this story this week, but there was a guy who uh, went to burglarize some homes. It was on USA Today. Some people were posting on Facebook. That's where I ended up seeing it. And uh, he ended up getting eaten by an alligator. I don't know if you saw that or not. But I, I clicked on it. It baited me in. I got in there. And I uh, read the story. And the guy actually told his... I don't know why his girlfriend told this story. I, th- I don't know how low all the law works. It seems like it'd make her an accessory. I'm not promoting lying, but it thinks like if you're going to rob a house, you're willing to lie, right? And so he, he tells his girlfriend he's going to go rob some houses. He's planned it ahead of time. And then they see him. Some neighbors see him. He looks suspicious. They call the police. He runs from the police. He ends up hiding. And the alligator drowns him, kills him. And they found out. They did the test they had to do. And you can read all the story if you want to know the details that it was the alligator that killed him. I bet when that guy set out to, to rob some houses and he called his girlfriend while he was running from the police. I don't know why she told that. But anyway, as he's thinking through worst case scenarios, I almost can guarantee you he didn't think he'd get eaten by an alligator. I think I'm going to break into some houses. I know I could get eaten by an alligator. Like, I don't think that got set. But it could. That's what happened. He didn't count the cost. Ended up pretty poorly. What does Jesus say? Because you'd think like a pastor... I should really like just try and get you to just make the decision, right? Well, Jesus says to count the cost. I was sharing the gospel with a guy this week, a Muslim background, is new to the Bible and new to Christian faith. He's read the whole New Testament. We've already talked about the gospel one time before. And uh, he said, I think I'm going to trust Jesus. I just don't, I'm not ready yet. And he thought, he was like, I was going to try and push him over. I said, hey, I really, more than anything, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. I want you to trust Christ. I will not manipulate you and I'm not going to push you into it. You need to count the cost. Because that's what Jesus says. Luke chapter 14 he gives some analogies. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost? And see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundations, not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him. Say, hey, well, I thought you were following Jesus. I mean, I thought you were building a tower. These are analogies by Jesus. This fellow began to build. He wasn't able to finish. Or, second analogy, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send, he'll come up with plan B. He'll send a delegation while the other is still along the way and he'll ask for terms of peace. What's happening? Jesus is coming back, by the way. 
and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on sin. And so the peace treaty that's offered is the cross of Jesus Christ, where you cast your sin upon the cross and trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Or do you think that you can handle it? Count the cost. In the same way, any of you, this is not just a one guy like the rich young ruler, by the way. It's not a unique situation. Any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Count the cost. Because when you call upon Jesus, what does Romans say? Romans says you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What does it mean for him to be in charge of everything? What does it mean for you to surrender your whole life to him? Count the cost. And then he begins a good work in you at that point. And he continues to do like Shannon was saying when she was talking about how God stripped things away. He continues to strip things away and he continues to have you take faith steps. And so as you walk by faith with him, have you counted the cost? And so think, what are some of your faith decisions? Some of you faith decisions about sin. Some of you, you know, maybe it's been a sin that you've been involved with for, for some time now. Maybe pornography, an eating issue. Uh, maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's some thing with people. So of course you should turn to Jesus, right? Well, yeah, but, but wait, count the cost. What are you going to do the next time you get really stressed? What are you going to do? Well, you for maybe years of your life have turned to this thing for comfort, for escape, for whatever it is you call What are you going to do when that moment comes again? Is Jesus better? You, it's like Elijah says, choose this day. If one is God, then go. And if the other is God, then go. You gotta, but you've got to decide. Be fully convinced in your heart. You better go for it. You can't have both. You can't have two masters. Count the cost. God's guiding you, probing you, stirring, tilling the soil, speaking to your heart, still small voice. Count the cost. What will it be to follow him? It might be great loss, but is what you're getting better? You see, because that's the third point, the final point. This book of Ruth isn't about Ruth. I know it's got Ruth's name on it. This book of Ruth is actually about the Hesed. It's the one-way kind of love of God. And so the final point is this. A committed faith commits to a trustworthy God. What Ruth is committing to, and there's a commitment to Naomi. I'm not trying to say that's not there, but it's ultimately to God. And remember, it's the whole story is about God. And what you end up seeing is how God sovereignly and providentially is working even in the valley, even in the darkest days. God's at work. Remember what Naomi said? She prayed for Hesed love. God, show your, your Hesed, your covenant love to these two Moabite idol-worshiping women. And even when they go back to their town, show your love to them. But God had a different plan. God's plan was to use one of those women to show his Hesed love ultimately to Naomi. Remember what Naomi said? God's hand is against me. God wasn't against her. God was using these dark days in her life ultimately to demonstrate his love to her. What was happening is that she was thinking she all was lost because she lost a husband. She didn't need a husband. You know what she needed? She needed a savior. You know what God was doing? Was delivering a savior to the world through Naomi, through Ruth. What happens in chapter 2 is that Ruth meets a, a man the Bible calls a kinsman redeemer. His name is Boaz. Boaz, do you know who he is? He is the son of Rahab. you know who Rahab is? Rahab's a prostitute who's been converted. Another name that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. God chooses to use this converted prostitute, her son, to hook up with this Moabite woman who's converted to Yahweh. Because God takes junk and he makes it beautiful, just like he takes the dark days and he can make them good. And God wasn't against Naomi. God was actually working for Naomi and through Naomi and her little story to do something way bigger. I don't know what your faith decision is, but God's got a bigger plan and it's ultimately not even about you. As hard as that might be to hear. I don't know, Dr. Phil would never tell you that. Dr. Phil was on in the locker room this week when I was in the gym. So, but anyway. Your story is not about you. Ruth is not about Ruth. It's about God. Let me read you the very end of the book of Ruth. They didn't copy and paste when they were writing the Bible, but it's almost a copy and paste of Matthew chapter 1, by the way. It says after, it talks about how blessed Naomi is, by the way. She's emptied, emptied, emptied at the beginning of the book, and she's full, full, full at the end. Then it says, this then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Ruth doesn't get mentioned, but in Matthew chapter 1, Ruth married to Boaz. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. And guess what that is? That's the line of Jesus. God was delivering a savior to the world through this woman's distress. And what does he want to do through your story? And the question is, do you think he's worthy of trust? When Peter stepped out of the boat, he knew the cost. He knew he could die. But he believed that communion 
with Christ was better than staying in the comfort of that boat. When those young boys, those Hebrew boys in Daniel chapter 3, are willing to step into that fiery furnace, they're not suicidal, but they believe that communion with their God is better than life on this earth. What does Paul say? For me to live as Christ, and so whatever that means, fellowship of his suffering, I've learned to be content in every circumstance, shipwrecked, abandoned, distressed, because what I'm getting is better. To die is gain. I get to be with him. The worst they can do is take your life. And so what can happen if you take the, count the cost? I'm not saying not to count the cost, but do you really believe that following God is better? Is he trustworthy? That's the ultimate question. And if he is, follow him. And if he's not, be all in where you're at. What decision does God want you to make this Christmas? Let's pray. Father, I come before you right now, and I pray for the hearts that are maybe wavering, and they're not sure. There might be a couple even that are thinking about whether to trust your son Jesus as Savior or not. I pray that you would draw them to you, draw them to your glory, draw them to you. You're so faithful that you took and reversed Naomi's situation from the worst possible situation to the best. If you can do that, you're worthy of trust. And I pray you'd take their situations, whoever does it's thinking through these things, and they'd see how trustworthy you are, and they would cast their trust upon you, that they would turn their hearts upon you. They'd shift their trust from anything they're trusting in themselves, their religion, some background, some other hope that they might have, a wishful thought, and they would put it on the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. If you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, I challenge you to do that right now. If you're watching online, if you're across the hall, if you're right here in the same room that I'm standing in right now, why would you wait another day? You're not guaranteed another day. Yeah, you need to count the cost. But let me tell you, that's the decision. You follow him. And some of you, he's begun that good work in you, and you're trying to decide, sin or Jesus? Sin will look good, just like the fruit on the tree did for Eve, and it will not deliver. And Jesus can be trusted. And some of you are wondering about guidance, and take that step of faith. Ask God to speak to you through his word and through his people, and take that step of faith. Father, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts in a way that only you can do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.